Uh, if you weren't here uh, last week, I encourage you to go back uh, and listen to that one. Uh, it was on Tamar. Uh, Hayden brought the heat last week in his first round, and, uh, and uh, you, you need to listen to it. Uh, in part just to kind of f- to flow with us, but also uh, so you can see T- Hayden at his best. So, um, Anyways, we are covering the mothers of Jesus. Uh, we're covering four women from the Old Testament, and we're going to finish up with Mary. And all five of these women are included in Jesus' family tree and his genealogy uh, that we see in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 1. And so uh, we, we looked at the genealogy two weeks ago, Tamar last week, and we're looking at Rahab this week. Uh, so let me pray and we'll get started. Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, this word or that we find ourselves uh, in these women. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would convince us, uh, if we need it, of being an outsider. And Lord, you would convince us too, if we, we're already convinced that we're outsiders, that uh, we indeed uh, are only made on the inside by your grace and not by anything that we do. Oh Lord, do this work through your word today. Amen. So let me ask the question, do you feel like an outsider today? Well, if so, you're in the right place. In fact, if you have to see yourself as an outsider in order to become a Christian, people who think they're Christians because that's what good, upstanding people do, they don't really understand what Christianity is all about. See, it's possible that you think you're a Christian because you were born into a Christian family. That you were born into the American South. You probably might even think you're a Christian because you're not something else. You're not a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Jew or a Muslim. And if that's you, you might just be a Christian in a cultural sense. Without being a Christian in actuality. See, you can believe in Christian doctrine in a cognitive way. You can espouse to follow the morality of the Bible. But that doesn't necessarily make you a Christian. In fact, you can think you're on the inside because you do ascribe to the Bible's doctrine and you do ascribe to the Bible's morality, but you might just be self-deceived. And Jesus warns against this kind of self-deception in Matthew chapter 7. He says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, we do not prophesy Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons in your name? Did we not perform miracles in your name? And Jesus says this, I will say to them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. See, the people Jesus is talking to in Matthew 7, they think they're on the inside. I mean, look at them. They know Jesus' name. They're making a positive impact in the world, and they're not just making a positive impact. They think they're doing it for Jesus. Yet somehow Jesus says that he doesn't know them. Isn't that scary? I I mean, truthfully, I I find this passage of Jesus to be, these sayings of Jesus to be the hardest, scariest text in all the scriptures. So how can we know? How can we know if we're on the inside or on the outside? Well, I would suggest to you, you can know by really drilling into our text today about Rahab. See, the only way you get on the inside, the only way you can become a Christian is if you first see yourself as an outsider. So let's read Joshua chapter 2, 
together. Starting in verse 1, uh, we'll actually go through verse 24. I think we just have 315 on the uh, screen. I changed my mind this morning. Uh, so if you've got your Bible app on your old cellular device, uh, pull that thing up and see so you can follow with me past verse 15. Verse 1, Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Uh, Joshua, by the way, was the leader of the people of God. Uh, Moses had just died, now Joshua is kind of the commander of the armies. He's kind of acting like a king in some ways. Still verse 1, Go look over at the land, Joshua said to the two spies. He said, especially Jericho. So they went and they entered the house of a prostitute there in Jericho named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent his message, sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and, and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. And at dusk, it was time to close the city gates, and they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men sent out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. And before the spies lay down for the night... She, Rahab, went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed and when we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family, because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, go to the hills. The pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there for three days until they return and then go on your way. Now the men had said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land, you have tied the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and unless you have brought your father and mother, your brother, and all your family into your house, if any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads, and we will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on your head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we're doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. 
Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, The Lord has surely given us the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. The word of the Lord. When you get to Joshua chapter 2, here's what's happened. Forty years before this episode, God had released the Israelites from captivity in Egypt. They were slaves there. You guys know the story. He split the Red Sea. They walked across. And for 40 years, they wander into the desert. But the whole time, even when they're in Egypt, they have a promise from God that he's going to give them the land of Canaan. And Canaan is is to the west of the Jordan River. And And a nation called Amor is to the right of the Jordan River and Moab. And so as they've gone up through the desert, they have come to the Amorites and they defeated them. We saw that in our text. Sion and Og were their kings. And now they're standing on the banks of the, of the river in Moab. All they have to do is look across the river. And there's Canaan. There's the land that God's going to give. They don't have to be in the desert anymore. They can be in a land that's, called, that's supposed to be flowing with milk and honey. Not that it's literally filled with milk and honey, but that it's, it's, it's going to nourish great agricultural feats for them that they've never known in their history. And here they are. They're right on the brink of enjoying God's promise to give them a land. But Joshua, their leader, he wanted to go into this, this land with his eyes wide open. So he sends two unnamed spies across the river to scout things out. And when they get over into Canaan, these two Israelite spies, they go to a brothel of all places. And it makes sense if you think about it. In a brothel, they can do some good eavesdropping. They they, they can do some reconnaissance work. They're going to be around a whole wide variety of people who will be coming and going in and out of the brothel. Maybe they'll get some inside intel. And they'll be able to take this information back to Joshua. And who's going to come look for them in a brothel anyways? Safe. But very quickly, starting in verse 3, it seems like their plan goes to pot, doesn't it? It's like Rahab couldn't keep her mouth shut. Somehow the, 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 the king of Canaan finds out that there are Israelite spies staying here in this brothel. So he sends the police to come check it out. They question Rahab. Rahab doesn't blow their cover. It really, she, twel- she tells quite the tale, doesn't she? She says the spies aren't here when they're actually on the roof. She doesn't know where they went. They were here once and now they've gone in some direction, but she doesn't know which direction. The police believe her tale. They don't come inside and check around the house. They certainly don't go up on the roof and find them. So she saved them. But why would Rahab, a Canaanite, save these two Israelite spies? Why would she do that? Well, she did so because she'd been converted. Did, did, did you see her confession in verses 9 to 13? I mean, I mean, this woman's never been to a Bible study before. She's never been to a worship service. But notice what she knows here. See, she's heard of Israel's God. She's heard how God had delivered them from Egypt. She's heard how they had won this battle against the Amorites. And she knows that the Israelites are standing on the banks 
of the Jordan to take over her land. In fact, she even knows God's personal name. She refers to him as Yahweh over and over and over again. And so you begin to piece some things together and you can kind of get a feel for what her theology is, can't you? She knows God's powerful just based on his deeds, how he's delivered them. She knows God's sovereign. She calls God the Lord of heaven and earth. And she also understands that God's merciful. And that's why she makes the plea that she does. So her confession is really at the crux of this whole chapter. And I'll tell you what's not at the crux. It's not her lie. You might have heard me read that and think, well, it's wrong to lie. That's one of the Ten Commandments, isn't it? I mean, the end of, uh, the, uh, at the end of the Bible, when you get to the end of Revelation, it says that God's going to throw liars into the lake of fire. Here you have, she's lying. You might have this intellectual curiosity, but here in Joshua 2, it's not, the author is not interested in relieving your curiosity. So that's not the point of the chapter. The point of the chapter isn't even how are these guys going to get out of here alive. The point of this chapter is her confession. Her confession is like a bright red light flashing saying, pay attention. Because this text is all about how God's saving grace goes to the most extreme, the most far out corners of humanity to pull outsiders into his family. See, that's really the point of this text. And Rahab is a big time outsider. She's an outsider on three accounts. We're going to look at each one. One is her social standing. The second is her ethnicity. And the third one is her morality. Let's start with her social standing. Her social standing is far from ideal, isn't it? I mean, first off, she's a woman. I mean, like we talked about with Jesus' genealogy a couple weeks ago, women were never included in people's genealogies in the ancient Near East. And it's because that In their culture, women were second-class citizens. They were on the outside. And if you were a woman and you wanted to approach being on the inside, you want to approach acceptance, you want to approach relevance, you would need to do two things. First, you need to get married. And secondly, you need to have children, especially boys. Then you could approach being on the inside. But look who we have here. You have Rahab. What we find out later in the book of Joshua is that she is husbandless in this incident. She's childless at this point. And so her social class alone makes her an outsider. But if you know Jesus, you wouldn't be surprised by Rahab's inclusion into his family tree. Because Jesus has been very willing to deal with people who have low social standing in his ministry, isn't he? And you've got Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene was demon-possessed. She was for sure an outsider. You have a woman who has the issue of blood that Jesus comes upon. She's ceremonially unclean. She can't go inside the temple. She's an outsider. You've got the quadriplegic at the pool of Siloam that Jesus interacts with. See, and all these have low social standing. I could go on and on and on. And each time it seems like Jesus is glad to associate with them. Now you might think, well, we've really progressed a long way, haven't we? You know, we're... It's 2022. Things are getting better in the world, aren't they? Well, 
while being a woman and being single and being childless, still sideline people in 21st century, we have other criteria by which those can come up with a low social standing. You cannot have an education, a very good one. You've not gone to private schools. You've not gone to college. And even if you did go to college, maybe you didn't go to a prestigious college. Maybe if you went to college, you didn't get the right kind of degree that's very respectable. So you feel like you're on the outside, just on your education. Or think about your body type. If you're overweight, you feel like you're on the outside. And if you're thin, you're automatically on the inside. Or your hygiene. Got straight teeth, keep your hair nice and tight. Keeps you on the inside. Keep up with the latest fashions and you have nice clothes. Keeps you on the inside. And I could go on and on, but we spend a lot of time trying to get inside or to stay inside, don't we? But notice who Jesus spent time with. And notice Jesus himself. I mean, he was a carpenter. He had no formal education. He's born in a barn. He's a low social standing. He's on the outside. There's another thing that makes Rahab on the outside. It's her ethnicity. It's this marker. See, she's a Canaanite, and if she was on the inside ethnically, she would have to be an Israelite. Because in Genesis chapter 12, God did choose the Israelites. But his whole intention was that the Israelites would include others, that, that the people of God would diversify because the Israelites would do cross-cultural Redemption. See, their call, the Israelites, from the very beginning was to bless all peoples, and in large measure, the Israelites fail to do so. They keep their God to themselves because they are, just like we are, ethnocentric. They think they have an inside track to God that those outside of Israel can't have. And we're not any different. And you realize this when you are the minority. For myself, growing up mostly in spaces where I've been part of the dominant culture, I didn't realize my ethnocentricity until I got outside of my culture. I remember the first time I went to Mexico, I was excited for the food mostly, but I went and I just uh, ate myself to death, really. It was a great experience. But I remember way more than the food when I went to Mexico. I remember noticing a bunch of cultural differences I never had encountered before. I remember the, the amount of respect that these people in Mexico, the Christians in Mexico, the amount of respect they had for their pastor made me feel very uncomfortable as a teenager. But later, what I realized that this is just a cultural thing. See, my culture, our culture, prefers to have an even distribution of power. That's what makes me feel uncomfortable. But they were much more comfortable with power being unevenly distributed. Power distance is a cultural factor. I also remember just how communal they were. How many generations lived in their houses. And that wasn't just because uh, they were of lower economic means than what I had known. It was a cultural thing. They're more communal and my culture is more individualistic. But think about it. I mean, I mean, so many times we begin to draw conclusions on cultural differences and we make moral judgments. We don't remain curious. We don't suspend judgment. We're not aware of our preferences. And why is that? 
It's because we're ethnocentric. We think our culture has a corner on the truth. Now, we know better than to say that, but that's the way we live. Well, let me be clear, though. I mean, Rahab is a Canaanite, and all Canaanites were pagans. The, the worship that the Canaanites engaged in was sexual in nature, and let me just tell you, Hollywood would blush. Not that just what was, existed in their culture, but the way their religion worked. So our culture is not a matter of neutrality. None of ours are. But it appears as if her pagan background is not a barrier for God. He's going to reach out and he's going to pull her into his family. And you can tell his pursuit of her, can't you? I mean, he made sure that she knew about the Egyptian deliverance. God made sure that she knew about Israel's victory on the other side of the Jordan. He made sure that the two Israelites don't stay at anybody else's brothel, but stay at hers. Because he wanted her, a Canaanite, on the inside. But the last thing that makes her an outsider isn't just her social standing. It's not the fact that she is a woman without husband or child. It's not just her ethnicity that makes her an outsider. It's also her morality. I mean, what's obvious at this point is that Rahab is a prostitute. And God wants to bring her in. He's not afraid to go out into the red light district. He's not afraid of whorehouses. He's not afraid of brothels. In fact, God's so bent on us understanding that you have to see yourself as an outsider, that he puts Rahab in Jesus' family tree. And then he puts Rahab in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And then in James chapter 2, he calls her righteous, a prostitute. See, no one is beyond the pale. No one is beyond recovery. So we've got to be careful about our first impressions we all too easily write people off as non-redeemable. But see, the church is a place for sinners. Just as hospitals don't exist for doctors, hospitals don't exist for nurses, hospitals don't exist for x-ray machines, they exist for sick people. So we need to see that God reaches down into the life of people who have low social standings, people who are minorities, people who are pagans, people who are political rivals, People are prostitutes in order to bring them into his family. So, brother and sister, I know it might seem like you're on the inside. You might have a nice job. You might have a degree from a nice institution. You might have a nice family. You might live in a nice neighborhood. You may even have a nice theology and be a member of a nice church like this one. But we've got to remember that the Bible says that all of us were once God's enemies. At one time, we were aliens and strangers and foreigners to his promises. And then we heard the news. We heard the news of God's power. We heard the news of God's mercy. We heard that God was so merciful that he gave his beloved son to a people who would reject him, abandon him, and in the end, crucify him. That God would give someone who would take the sin of people upon his shoulders and suffer his wrath. See, God's merciful. He wants a people for himself. He wants a people for his own possession. He wants to shower his love and mercy on us, and the cross proves it. He's so merciful. He's powerful too, though. See, Jesus overcomes the powers of hell and Satan and death and sin 
when he rose again from the grave. That's his supreme act of his power. So you've heard this news. For many of you, it's changed your life. It's the news that brought you into the inside. And maybe you've heard this news, just like Rahab, and you believe it, but you want more than that. You, you want a refuge like Rahab had. You want an experience like Rahab had. You want to escape the wrath of God like Rahab did. You see your desperate need like Rahab did. And my prayer that this Christmas season that you might really see yourself as an outsider. Because those are the kind of people who become Christians. Let's pray. Father, I pray you would uh, show us that no matter what we did this past week, we can't unqualify ourselves for your grace. Lord, that Rahab is being given to us. Lord, that, that we know if we read the book of Joshua that it makes complete sense, even without Rahab's story. That your people really do get the land of Canaan. But you included this story so that we might know that outsiders are welcome. In fact, that's the requirement. That we have to view ourselves as such. So I pray that no matter what any of us have done, Lord, that we would see that we can't outsend your grace. We pray these things in your name. Amen.